It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Will. And I'm Freddie. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. Hello, I'm Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor of the New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have Will Dunn, our business editor, and Freddie Haywood, our political correspondent. We've been digging around in our virtual mailbag and we've brought you a couple of questions to discuss. So, Freddie, what question have you picked? This is a question from a listener who got in touch via Spotify, but we don't know their name. They ask, looking at the polling for a ceasefire in Gaza, it seems like foreign policy is the area where Westminster is most out of touch with public opinion. Why is this? Okay, well, this is a really interesting question. Obviously, we've talked quite a bit about the divisions within Labour, but there's been developments since then. Keir Starmer made a speech to clarify his position. Actually, he was sort of doubling down on his refusal to call for a ceasefire, wasn't he? Yeah, completely. I think he had his big speech on Tuesday where he basically set out the reasons that he's not going to call for a ceasefire. Yeah. I think the big surprise within the party is that it took so long for this to happen. Lots of MPs uh, were texting me or querying why this hadn't come 10 days before yeah. when you've had this uh, huge eruption of discontent within the party, uh, which you've spoken about a lot on the podcast. And then he also, alongside those reasons, set out uh, his principles for managing the situation. If he were in office, he made it clear that he wants Israel to stop the illegal settlements in the West Bank. He also uh, recommitted the party to a two-state solution. He was also quite critical of diplomacy in the past 10 or 20 years, he said. So he included that new Labour period as well in the failure to uh, move towards diplomatic uh, solution when we saw some progress in the 90s and early noughties. So he was quite critical and also quite ambitious about what he thought he could achieve if he became prime minister. What he didn't do and what he darted around was the question of how on earth the UK has the power within international affairs to bring this about. He didn't exactly say what would happen if Israel doesn't listen to uh, the leader of of the opposition or if he did become prime minister, the prime minister. Uh, So that was less clear. Um, But yeah, it was essential that he did this just because the unrest within his party was getting so extensive. Yeah, and it's and there was a hint in the speech that that position could evolve consider you know as 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 events develop, which I took to mean basically 
when Washington calls for a ceasefire, we'll do it too. And, and I suppose it's the same on the UK government side. It's not just Labour who have made these calculations. Yeah, quite. So his argument for not calling for a ceasefire was that uh, Hamas still have hostages, yeah. Israeli hostages in Gaza. So therefore, they should be able to act militarily to rescue those hostages. He said that that may change. Um, uh, but yeah, I completely agree, Anoush. Some in the party did think this was a, a shift to the left or a shift to their position. Mm. I think it was just a reflection of the fact that the Labour's foreign policy at the moment um, is very happy to sit under the aegis of America and also to build consensus with the government. Yeah, and, and our questioner has, has asked specifically about these, you know, the position of both the government and Labour clashing with public opinion, which is more sympathetic towards a ceasefire. Um, and some, I mean, many front benches, I think 16 front benches have called for a ceasefire, representing the views of their constituents and the people that they're hearing from. Um, how sustainable is it going to be for Starmer not to sort of sack them for, for crossing the party line? Yeah, I was speaking to some people close to Starmer and I think their approach so far is basically to see this as a one-off, to let people voice their concerns, as you say, represent their constituents uh, and also their consciences, uh, and then try and seal this off and not let this bleed into other issues Mm. as well. I mean, I think that's probably achievable just because people don't feel as passionately about some other issues. We haven't seen the same amount of unrest uh, over the two-child benefit cap, for instance, which did have some, but not nowhere near the same um, extent. And also because we have to remember that Labour is on the verge of power uh, and lots of MPs and ministers want to be in governmental positions if that happens and they don't want to be on the back benches. So that's just the, the nuts and bolts of it. Um, but then back to the, the question of why there might be this dissonance between the public and the government. So I think this is referring to a poll that essentially says that 70 or 75% of people want a ceasefire, uh, whereas the government and Keir Starmer haven't called for one. They've called for humanitarian pauses uh, to allow aid to get in. Mm. I think there is dissonance there, sure, but we've also seen a lot of alignment between the public and the government on things like Ukraine. Uh, That support has always been there for the government's mission and also for uh, Labour's position. Why don't you see it here? I think lots of people look at the the horrors that are going on and think we need this to stop and then they associate that with a ceasefire. I think the mantra or the conversation might change slightly. Now we've had this video from a Hamas leader basically saying that they want to do the attack again and again. Um, That completely undermines the argument for a ceasefire and I think uh, some in Labour will, will look at that and potentially reconsider. But there's there's always this disconnect, I think, between the public and the government or the political parties on foreign policy. And as we always say, I don't think foreign policy drives political opinion in this country in a way that it has potentially in the 20th century or in, in the past. It's just not at the forefront of people's minds. Yeah, and I think it's a simple case of compassion, isn't it? Because the mo- most ways that people who perhaps aren't part of either community that's directly affected will be consuming this war, if you like, is watching the terrible clips that you see on the news. And of course, the idea of ceasefire, i.e. no conflict, yeah. is the most attractive option. So I think perhaps polling in that area isn't necessarily super helpful unless it tracks a change in public opinion over time when you see various developments coming out, like you mentioned. Um, So I'm not sure necessarily if that's going to be the driver for how politicians act. Usually politicians are obsessed with public opinion, aren't they? But on things like these foreign policy positions, they're thinking much more about how much influence does Britain have? How aligned does it have to be with America? Those are the general considerations. 
I suppose there is one way in which it could become a broader domestic political issue, um, which would be if there is if the conflict broadens, um, it has the potential to become a, a second Ukraine in terms of energy prices. Um, we have seen a a rise or a reversal of, in the trend, uh, the previous downward trend in oil prices. We've seen um, gas prices rise um, as a result of um, Israel um, closing a large gas field in the Mediterranean um, for security concerns. Were it to spread to you know more involvement with with Iran, then that would have a significant effect on um, energy prices, which would affect us um, in a similar way to, to Russia's war in Ukraine, um, perhaps not um, as extreme an effect, but it wouldn't need to be as extreme to have a significant right. effect on, on inflation and that kind of thing in this country. So, yeah, I can see how it's an issue in which the public can't see why um, politicians would prevaricate, whereas politicians are perhaps thinking about, um, you know, wider, more long-term potential um, results of intervention. After the break, it's my turn to ask a question. We're going to be reviewing the UK's Global AI Summit. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So earlier this week, we published a new podcast episode from our political editor, Andrew Marr, who spoke about his concern that in today's environment of conspiracy and readily accessible AI, the average informed person can't distinguish between what is real and what's not. And he called this the cloud of unknowing. And this seemed to resonate with quite a lot of our listeners. A lot of them got in touch and one of them wrote in saying, I believe Andrew's talk today... I love how his podcast gets called a talk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Addresses the most urgent, urgent in capitals issue for our society and the economy. And the cloud of unknowing is the deadly threat to our quality of discourse and life. I doubt this British government's AI event will address this threat. Um, So the AI event referred to here is the UK government's global summit on AI safety, which has been taking place this week. In fact, it's still ongoing. So we are talking on Thursday morning. Um, More will come out of it. Uh, in Bletchley Park, which is the sort of home of computing. So, Will, what do we know about what's been coming out of this summit so far? Well, the big thing to come out of it so far is the Bletchley Declaration, which is an agreement to to have a meeting. It's, you know, we've got to the end of the meeting and we've said, look, we're going to have another meeting. That happens a lot of um, the new statesmen, actually. It does. We should have that con- <laughs> convening power. Yeah, that's to discuss. Um <laughs> And um, that is a much shorter and vaguer document than the one issued by President Biden on Monday, Mm. um, which was an executive order um, regarding how the US is going to, in its own words, lead the way to global societal, economic and technological progress on AI. So Biden there, to a certain extent, um, saying, actually, we're in charge, (laughs) Rishi. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, they're, so they're, it, it does. It is impressive. I think that you know that, uh, that they've they've got all these people together and they've got them to sign something. And I guess necessarily, 
if you are going to get America and China in the room together you and get them to sign something, it will have to be something quite vague at this point. Yeah. So, yeah, although it sounds quite sort of COP26 in terms of, um, you know, people saying warm words and then going off to do different stuff. Um, and it, yeah, and it, and it does, it has been addressing AI as this this big, frontier issue, big issue of safety. Yeah. And, and how much, because I remember they brought out a white paper in March and everyone interpreted that as the UK wants to be lighter touch on AI regulation than the EU. The idea was to use our existing regulators rather than sort of introduce new far reaching legislation. And there was a pro innovation approach that Sunak was talking about. Has he changed his mind? He did a remarkable thing over the summer that he convinced journalists that he had changed his mind. <laughs> I think because there was that um, hysteria or panic when those 200 or 300 academics signed that very short letter saying that AI posed an existential threat. Yes. Um, and then number 10 said, actually, no, we are really concerned about this. But I don't, I think they just changed the wording on the press release. The actual fundamentals of what they were doing did not change. Okay. And I think you saw that again in his speech on Friday, where he essentially said that we should not rush to regulate AI and we should be a pro-innovative, uh, pro-innovation country and we should try and attract the AI companies to the UK uh, because they'll face greater regulatory frameworks elsewhere. So that's the tactic, or sorry, that's the strategy. Mm. Um, whether that works or not, I think is an interesting question. And also whether there's a, a disconnect between trying to have this light touch regulatory approach and also trying to be the world leader in regulation. <laughs> so Will's completely right. We had this week, Biden set out this very extensive plan to regulate through the executive branch of the US government, uh, AI, um, which is in effect a response to the fact that Congress can't pass much AI legislation at the moment in the way that the EU is doing so. So you've got these two big behemoths who've tried to, I know, who are racing down the line to regulate. And then you've got the UK in the middle. And I think there's a there's a risk uh, of it getting squished between the two. Um, and then also the the summit itself, is it has been overshadowed slightly by uh, what the US has done. It's not as if uh, the US announcing an AI safety institute is necessarily a bad thing. The whole point about the summit was to try and um, energize some regulatory fervor. And that has happened in some respect. And also, it's great that they've managed to get the US and China, the EU to all sign up to uh, to be to cooperate in the future, essentially. And it was very similar to some of the COP uh, communiques that we see come out. But that is a low, it's a low bar, but it's important that it happened. It's also the first of its kind to happen. However, it does make the UK look a little bit as if it's the new Vienna or Geneva, whereby we are just a place that big countries come to carve up the world and we provide the tea and the tables. <laughs> and it's, I think you, you also have to look at who he's invited in terms of whether or not this is a pro-regulatory or, uh, you know, light touch summit, because his star guest is um, Elon Musk. Um, who um, despises regulation. Earlier this month, he tweeted, our civilization is being slowly strangled to death one regulation at a time. Uh, his worst enemy is the SEC. Um, he has a, one of his hobbies is making the words SEC, the letters SEC into various profanities. Remind the listeners what the SSE is. Oh, I, I can't really say it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't want to say it off a podcast, to be honest. It's revolting. Oh, sorry. Oh, not his, um, not his, his euphemism for it. I didn't it. know you hated sorry. regulation that much. No, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> it's the Securities and Exchange Commission who right. are the people who charged Elon Musk with securities fraud. They're the American financial markets regulator. 
So he has used the, the letters SEC to mean various um, other things, <laughs> uh, which we won't repeat. Um, but uh, yeah, so he, he loathes regulation uh, and um, and isn't really that much of an AI entrepreneur. Like, it makes complete sense to have somebody like Sam Altman uh, there, who is the CEO of OpenAI, which makes ChatGPT, which is the AI that everyone has heard of and probably used. Um, Tesla has said they're going to spend a couple of billion on AI, but that's um, it's a lot of money, but it's not as much as some banks are spending. It's nothing like, it's about 1% of what Google spent on AI mm -hmm. over the last uh, decade. So he's not there as an AI person. He's there as the, the really high-profile AI commentator, and he doesn't like regulation. Um, yeah, you know, and I, arguably people from OpenAI and things like that are there to secure a lighter touch rather than have Britain be the primary regulator. You can also see it in what we've done with policy already. Mm. You know, um, the, the steps the government has taken uh, towards, you know, things like GDPR are one of the things they want to do with the UK version of the GDPR is to take out this Article 22, which is the provision, uh, your consumer protections against automated decision making. So that's the bit that says why a robot isn't going to, or, you know, a, a piece of software isn't going to, change how much insurance you pay mm. without explaining why or basing it on things like, you know, personal characteristics that are protected. That's that's seen by the government so far as being a bit anti-innovation and mm -hmm. we'd like to get rid of that. So it seems like their actions speak louder than their words. Thanks so much. And thanks to everyone who submitted questions. We do read all of them, so please keep them coming in. If you'd like to send one, you can just go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. And if you're listening on Spotify, scroll down on the episode page and leave a reply. And YouTube viewers can drop a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues Will Dunn and Freddie Hayward. We'll be back next week. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.